This is really, really, really habitual. And if we don't keep doing it, just like book one is saying in Samadhi Kata, that if we don't keep integrating it, it's something that you, it's like riding a bike almost. Like you won't lose it, but if it becomes ingrained and becomes a part of you, this is really, really huge. So book one is all about samadhi or cognitive absorption. You got the big picture or a roadmap to where you're going, to the state of samadhi itself. So let's see, look at Yoga Sutra 1.1, and it's on page two of the cheat sheet. And I won't make you like um, recite all of these, but let's learn some of the major ones. Atta Yoga Nushasana. Atta Yoga Nushasana. Great. So Atta to me is really huge. Now is the time. And a lot of these um, start with Atta. So just like your breath, you have an inhale and an exhale, and it gives you balance but it always begins again. So if you fuck up on last breath, you can start again. It's okay. Just like your second marriage or your third marriage <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's like you always get the opportunity to, to recreate and to begin again. And I think that's really huge that um, ata, now is the time. Now then yoga is being explained. Now begins an exposition of yoga. Yoga is about union, joining, state of integration, a merger with the divine self or balance. And then you get Anu. And Anu is the word kind of like Adam. There's a couple of a word that mean Adam or smallest building block. But this is the smallest building block in nature. And so when you put it with Anushasanam, it's the explanation or things at its fundamental level. So you're learning like the baby step to the greater overall picture of this roadmap of, you know, whatever you're excited to do about in your yoga practice. Um, yoga Sutra 1.2, Yogash Chitta Vritti Narodaha. Yogash Chitta Vritti Narodaha. So when I grew up, my dad always said, shit happens. <laughs> he did. He's a great dad, but he said shit happens. And I swear to God, Chitta happens. And so that is like a hashtag I use a lot. It is true. Yoga is the control of the modifications of the mind field. Yoga is the suppression of the modifications of the mind. The state of yoga arises when you cease to identify with your fluctuating mind. Or yoga is the dissolution of the mind into the origin of the mind field. So vritti means fluctuation or turning. So it would be the same thing as samskara. Right? The turning. But the mind field is a mutation of sattva, which is the purest aspect of prakriti, or prakriti. So sattva is like that most luminous, easy, calm, harmonious state, right? That's what we're trying to attain. Like, and I hate when people use the word happy, like, because really it's about contentment. Because if you're trying to be happy and then you're not really happy, then you think you suck. And then you're like looking at Facebook and you have FOMO and like you're like, you, you know, you're like, are poking fingers at yourself and what you're really trying to do is find contentment so sattvic state of being harmonious happy doesn't mean that you have to be like delusionally happy and everything's perfect in your life all the time but that you have contentment that you have equanimity that you have balance does that make sense mm -hmm. chitta um <clears throat> it rests in this place 
of where um, your thoughts or the perceived tool or what occurs during meditation. So that chitta is a river which flows in either two directions. You can go into the world of experiences where you're teaching about desire, ignorance, sin, or indiscriminate things. And then there's the ocean of spiritual sources where you have true self-knowledge, liberation, independence. You have a control over those samskaras or those vrittis. That's really tough, right? And our object is to stop the flow in one direction and make it flow in the other. And so it doesn't mean that you're going to be totally, perfectly balanced all the time, but you're trying to find equanimity and not get stuck in one direction or the other, that you're just really find center. Vritti is not simply a thought. It is an activity of forming concepts um, from individual thoughts that arise in the mind. So you're practice of constructing or inducing concepts of reality from mental impressions. So if you're having like perversions or paranoia or twisted thoughts, those are those like kind of like some scars, your judgments, your doubt. And what you really want to do is to find stillness of the mind and the cessation of the misidentification with the mental stuff. So it's the goal of yoga and the means to attain yoga. It's a process and a state. You're not suppressing or restricting, nor even abstaining from things, right? Because people are extremists, right? And you don't have to go to an extreme. You can still be an, like uh, what you are right now and still be a really good yogi and yogini as a woman. But it's a cessation or a calming or a process of being. Have you ever heard of a saying that with light comes shadow? So in here, in the regal path of yoga, I like to think is that we're kind of like a diamond or your favorite gemstone, that you have to embrace all facets of yourself. So you might have like, oh, something really positive, or oh, I have this bad thought that sometimes arises, but I'm not, oh, I'm not going to say like, well, I'm not this person. I'm going to be like, oh, okay, I understand that is a facet of me, but I don't have to be that thing. And in turn, you're practicing what yogis call pejas, that, that you are lustrous. Every facet of your gemstone, good or bad, still makes you who you are, right? But how can you find center? How can you align within your truth? How can you find a state of being without um, kind of getting stuck up in that um, ritti, the fluctuations. Cool. Uh, and then there's an uh, exercise and an idea to think about it, but when you snor do you snorkel or deep sea dive in your mind, because meditation is a moment-to-moment -moment conversation, thoughts and ideas bubble up, but there is no self. Hence, thoughts are not conceptualized because they're not in yourselves. Yoga is liberation from the mind but not the mind. In deep sleep, your soul returns to the source for nourishment, and yogis can attain this clear state um, while they're awake. So the job of our mind is to think. You're never going to stop thinking until you like freaking die. And if you know how to stop thinking, then please call me up and tell me. Um, but you're just not a content of your thoughts. You're not, you are not your thoughts. And that's a really huge thing to remember because as yogis, if we allow the chitta vrittis 
to calm and find a state of stillness and you let them go like clouds in the sky, then you become non-attached and you create space for greater things or more santosha, more contentment in your life. Does that make sense? So already in the first like opening of the um, Yoga Sutras, that's pretty freaking profound. No one's told you, do warrior two and you're going to be a better person. Right? No one's told you to, like, go through a whole physical asana practice. They're saying, like, be kind to yourself. Don't get caught up in the misidentification of the mind stuff. Yoga is the calming of the fluctuations of the mind. Then in 1.12, practice and non-attachment are the way to avoid identifying with your fluctuating mind. So if you practice non-attachment, then you will find ease. Practice is a discipline, and discipline is part of the practice. So I like to say with my little kids yoga program that practice is progress, right? You might not always be able to do it, but the more you do it, the more you progress into your path of where you're going to. And um, have you ever seen a, a bird, if a dog has four legs but it's missing one, it can walk, right? But if a bird has one wing, can it still fly? No. So that's kind of what this is saying, is like, you can't fly with only one wing. You can walk the talk and, and all of that stuff, but I don't know if you've ever been to a studio where you've seen a teacher phone it in, have you ever heard that saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Where you go somewhere and the teacher's like looking in the mirror, yeah. or they're not paying attention to the students, or they're saying something and like the students are doing a totally different pose. Yeah. Uh huh. They're phoning it in, right? So, so whether it's an interaction between a friend and having a good conversation, or whether it's doing your, you know, God bless you, homework, or whether it's teaching yoga, whatever it is or whether it's engaging with your child, you can't fly with only one wing. You have to be wholly there. And that's what this is talking about. 1.14, your practice will have firm foundation with attention to over an extended period of time with sincerity and without interruption. It has to be habitual. How many of you do meditate? Oh, this is impressive. Okay, so the idea is, is that even if it's for a minute a day, or even if it's sitting at a stop sign and having a mindfulness moment, and you're um, taking a purposeful pause, that's your habitual practice. Even if it's having tea in the morning and you don't like to meditate, or you haven't been able to figure out how to be able to sit down and truly meditate yet, but you have some kind of habitual practice that is a grounding exercise for you, you are in the zone. That's yoga. And that's really, really huge. But this sutra 1.14 saying it has to be habitual. It can't be something that you do like once a month. Right? 1.15 is talking about how non-attachment is the awareness of your own self-mastery as the seer, while not clinging to sensory objects already experienced or heard from others. This is really huge because as a teacher, you have to be aware of your own self as a seer and seeing with non-attachment. 
So it's a suspending your knee-jerk reactions, and this is a really nuanced walk. Um, um, sometimes I have you do partner stuff, but because this isn't a longer workshop and it's a pretty short workshop, I, we have to keep moving forward. But the idea is that, like, the idea of compassion versus empathy is pretty huge. Is anybody in here a practicing therapist? Mm. So you can explain this to everybody, but this is a pretty, that's why you like yoga so much. But, yeah, pretty much this is yeah. the therapy principles. Right, basically. yeah, I know, that's why, that makes sense. So um, have you ever heard of like, um, like the little red shoes? The story of the little red shoes? Um, so you see something behind a glass wall and you say, oh, look at those shoes. Or you see something and you put the shoes on so that you can be in that place with your student. There's a glass wall and the shoes are on that side and you have compassion or you are so empathetic that you put your student's shoes on and you walk their walk. And then all of a sudden, my phone's doing really weird things. Then um, all of a sudden, um, you have become more in a state of empathy. And that's a fine line as a teacher because you're going to have people coming in and more and more as teachers and the world is becoming more awake, you have, are more empathetic and you can feel and sense other people's stuff. And you have to really walk into a space with compassion, but you can't take on other people's issues. And it becomes a very subtle thing. So that is part of the non-attachment, is that self-mastery. And not Yeah. We want you to be compassionate, but we don't want you to put the shoes on.
and yourself, the more challenging it is to really hold space for yourself. And that's why yoga self-care as a teacher is really huge. And this, this sutra, 1.15, is so huge. That's a great question. I think Marcy might have good answers for you. I would say your answer is great. That's what I would say. I think the other key is non-judgment. And it does take practice, practice, practice. It's not like you get it and you never do it. But you see where it's a problem. You try to avoid doing it. You recognize it's not always the most helpful thing to do. Yeah. Um, but it's painful to watch people struggle, especially when you love them so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to berate the point, but like, my husband's awesome, and I am on marriage number two, so, you know, it has its own uh, foibles. But um, he supports me doing this, mm -hmm. but he's just not, and I don't mean this to sound kind of same. I'm at a much higher level than he is when it comes to consciousness stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to communicate sometimes because I see a mile down from where he is, but I can't tell him that. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, he's going through the major thing with his father right now. And I'm like, yeah, I saw this coming seven years ago, huh? you know, but I can't say that. Mm -hmm. I just have to go, yeah, it's really tough. Mm -hmm. You should get your ass on the mat and learn to meditate, you know, <laughs> but I can't say that, <laughs> yeah. but I want to. Right, yeah. yeah. It's but hard. There's little subtle ways or things you can do, and that's what we're going to talk about. You all are pure heart revolutionary spirit, and we're going to talk about this. You can teach by example. And that's right, and people yeah. elevate and rise at their own time. But we are in uh, um, the age of Aquarius. Mm -hmm. We are in a time where people are starting to anchor into their truth and be able to become more of who they are. But we just have to allow it to have space. So someone once told me a story about. Um, if someone's crying and telling you the experience and they're like sobbing and crying and crying and then you give them a Kleenex, you have just taken away from their experience, right? But you just have to let them kind of go through it and process and sit there, right? Do you have that friend who's always, um, you say something and they're like, well, oh, when I did this or this is what I would do or they're all trying to solve your problems. Mm -hmm. But the idea of like peeling away the layers, 
as you go through this process and you're having the vitamin and you're having the experience of this training, you're peeling away layers and things are percolating to the surface that might have been repressed or held down for a long time or might be triggers in your relationships and things that you're trying to figure out, like how do I actually engage? And I think just as much that you're holding space for other people, hold space for yourself. Find some self-care, find some space for yourself. And part of what we'll learn through the sutras is that this is a time for you to actually um, learn new tips and techniques and tools to allow yourself to be the tejas, to open up to those different facets. And be like, oh, I never really thought I felt this way, but I actually feel this way. Okay, that's good. How can I balance skills? Um, the 1.3, the idea of Ishvara, is um, you can cease identifying with the fluctuating mind through total surrender and devotion to the divine self. So Ishvara is the ultimate seer, the personal divine, the divine within. And one of the names of the divine is your name. So like whatever your given name is, is the name for divine. But a lot of people say Ishvara is God. So that the Ishvara in this sutra 1.13 is all about the power of surrender. It's talking about prana, your life energy, your thoughts, your words, your actions. And it's also talking about the idea of dhyana, where you dedicate or devote or surrender or donation. Like I went once to this really cool place um, I was able to only pay part of it, but like a lot of meditation centers have dhyana, where their supporters put money in so that people can get scholarships. Think of dhyana as like a scholarship, right? So that you're dedicating or devoting or surrendering. So it's such an important um, concept of surrender that Patanjali repeats it four times. Surrender is the express route to enlightenment. I know there's all kinds of different help, self-help and different things, but have you ever has heard um, let go, let good, or let go, let God, right? That's where these sayings come from. Surrender is not a sign of weakness. In yoga, victory is attained when we surrender our limited sense of who we are and make space to feel our true nature. And that's a lot of what the Bhagavad Gita is all about. So if you think about the Bhagavad Gita, the book that you have to read for this training, Bhagavad Gita itself means a song of God. And it's a really fascinating story about Arjuna. I also want you to think about the thing that, like, Louisa May Alcock's father, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Thoreau, um, there was a group of people who studied the Bhagavad Gita and ancient yoga texts. And that's where a lot of our philosophy, a lot of our poetry, a lot of our modern day like, um, you know, concepts and principles come from. Is the, are these ancient texts. There's a really... There are some really interesting books we can talk about after class that, you know, talk about like when yoga was brought over to the World's Fair or when yoga, when yogis were brought over to the East and there's a man that he called himself the Amazing Om and he's kind of like a 
spin doctor. But it really, it was amazing to see, like, hear stories about the Rockefellers and all these really famous people from New York and how they, like, took to these principles and um, really embraced them. Tesla. Huh? Tesla, right? Tesla, related, yes. Right? Was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? It's crazy, right? And then, like, um, a lot of magicians that I know, uh, have you ever heard of Ananda Judith? And she had the chakra book lady. Um, she's actually from the Midwest, but, like, a lot of magicians, famous musicians in Vegas, study from her. Because, like, yo uh, yoga and magician stuff is very similar. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, um, on that same plane of what you're talking about, um, Aveda. Mm -hmm. So Horst studied with a Vedic scholar here at the Himalayan Institute, and that's where Aveda comes from. Yeah, I mean, when you, like, see, like, it's that, that Kevin Bacon thing, six degrees of separation. You know how you can play that six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon? We can reduce six degrees of separation from yoga and find all kinds of cool things. Yeah. It is pretty amazing, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so into that kind of same concept of talking about um, 1.23 again, um, there's a great quote that uh, the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to bloom. When you talk about Anais Nin and those kind of quotes is if you give yourself to God and attain the identity of God, because if not, whatever you feel grows. So get over yourself immediately and do it now. We're going to learn in book three and four about Siddhas, but Siddha in Sanskrit means superheroes. And so you are a superhero. You have the beating heart of a badass, so you need to feel it and let your freak flag fly. <laughs> because if not, no one else is going to see your radiance. No one else is going to see and hear your heart and all the cool things that you have to offer, right? It doesn't mean people have to love it. It's your experience, right? In 1.27, we're talking about um, Patanjali and 27 to 29, referencing the sound of Om, right? And I think it's called Om, because someone asked me the question about that before with the O-M, is because it looks O-M, it looks like that, right? A lot of Hindi uh, or um, Indian people that I know take that drawing and make it look like an elephant. Yeah. So they take it and it makes them think of an elephant because of the way of a nose. Yeah. So it, it does look like OM, right? And then if you look at it in the Tibetan way, it's like written this way. Yeah. Right? So of course we could have translated it into OM. But the reason that it's OM, or we're reminded of the power of OM and the way to bring us back to our true nature, is repetition and reflection on OM destroys obstacles to knowing and brings knowledge to the divinity within. Have you been explained what that means? That symbol? Okay, everybody has your pen out. Okay, so the three looking thing, right? Yeah, it's We'll just speak my yeah. <laughs> That's the A. Ah, the A. That's the waking state. The circle, or the U, is the dreaming state. So think about all the stuff you learn in like psychoanalytical stuff. This is where it's coming from. 
The mm is the little half moon. And that's deep sleep. And then the little dot, that's like representative of the bindu, right? And that's the represents past, present, future, where you transcend all space and time. So the what's the end? Where's the end? So ah, so, uh, yeah. ooh, mm. Circle is where you transcend all space and time. It's the bindi. So have you ever seen a bindi? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like the... Oh, yeah. Okay, so they also believe in tantric yoga philosophy that the only time that the Shishunanadi and the Aida Pingala <laughs> that they meet is when you uncoil serpentine snake and it meets right here. Hence why we always put the, the little decorative thing right here. Yeah. The third eye is where you're supposed to finally start to come into center, which means you have to, through practice, breathing, breath work, movement, whatever it is that is your jam, you have to open up this through all of that. So it goes ah here, ooh here, mm here, and then there's space. So we'll get through this, and then we're going to um, do it all together, because uh, ooh. Do you like incense? This burns up. The magic of the practice is when you are wholly integrated, and all the things that no longer serve you burn off. Right? So you have to have that space. Okay. Um, Yoga Sutra 1.33. The mind becomes purified by the cultivation of feelings of amity, compassion, goodwill, indifference, respectively, towards happy, miserable, and virtuous or sinful creatures. The Dalai Lama once said that all creatures want to be happy. And Gandhi stated, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. So a lot of times you'll see people go like this, in thought, in mm -hmm. speech, and in action. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot more sense now, right? Because the idea of what we're doing is that we have to come into harmony. And we, as humans, are empathetic by nature, and it's hard not to feel for others, but we want to rejoice in good fortune of others and treat them with compassion and kindness, which is a great thing, mm -hmm. what we're talking about. Um, or it, what's happening in the thing that you raised, Pamela. Um, people in our culture can get really numbed out, and we are forced um, to be competitive. But as yogis, I want you to really think about we're spiritual activists, and we're, it's a choice of, of right versus being free. So we really want to find center, and we want to have freedom, and not force people. Right? And we have to treat with compassion and kindness. Buddhists call it metta, or loving kindness. And we're working through the metta, the loving kindness, to find ease. Um, and so um, in 
It talks about exhaling and restraining the breath. Also, the mind is calm. So it's saying in this one that as pure of heart revolutionary spirits, meditation is the express ticket to enlightenment. In order to come into your truth, if you meditate, you're there. And when you exhale and restrain the breath, it's called the kumbhaka. So it's a breath ratio practice. Has anybody ever done that? Mm -hmm. Where you inhale, you hold it for a certain count, and then you exhale. Yeah. It's pretty intense. Mm -hmm. um, one more thing I want to teach you. So it is 4.42. What I'd like to do is um, I would like to read as much of book two as we can. Um, from our, uh, our aphorisms, but I want to remind you, um, we're going to do the ohms before we leave. We'll do three ohms together and end exactly at, um, at the time class is over. But do you know what the hertz is of our world? Hertz, the resonance? Yeah. Oh, How's everybody doing? Good. Any questions? Is it making sense? Mm -hmm. 